water and dehydrated right now. And studies have shown that Americans, U.S. citizens, 75% uh, of us are chronically dehydrated. We don't drink enough water. Dehydration affects our lives in various kinds of ways. It affects your energy levels. You're more fatigued. You have a foggy memory. If you're not drinking enough water, and David's drinking water right now. Good job, brother. Yeah. But, yeah, you have a foggy memory. Your, your mind isn't functioning as quickly or as smoothly. You're more irritable. I mean, the sole cause of that is our sin in our hearts. But, yes, we are more inclined towards a lack of self-control and giving into sin if we are dehydrated slows down your metabolism, and it can create kidney stones, which is not a pleasant thing to experience, if some of you may have in the past. Dehydration is a huge problem, and so often we're ignorant of it. You know? And sometimes as well, when you're hungry, you're not actually, your body's not saying, hey, you need food. It's saying, hey, you need, you need water, so go drink some water. And people debate about what the percentage of our body is, is it's composed of water, but we need water in order to live. And a large percentage of our body, somewhere between 60 and 80% of our body is water. We need hydration, we need water. Now Jesus in the text that we're in this morning is having this encounter with a woman who goes to a well to get water and he is diagnosing the greatest problem of her life is not a physical thirst for water that you can draw from a well that you can get from some other physical source. But the greatest problem that she faces is a spiritual dehydration, a, a, a spiritual drought, as it were. This is what we're thinking about this morning from John chapter 4. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 4. As you turn there, here's a little bit of context. Chapter 1 of John, the Apostle John laid out that Jesus is both true God and true man in the same person of the Son, Jesus Christ, and how John the Baptist's ministry, ultimately the culmination of the Jewish practices of purification and washing through water of baptism, led straight into Jesus' ministry, who would purify his people not with water baptism, but with a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a spiritual purification, a spiritual cleansing of heart. Chapter 2, Jesus repurposed the water jars that were used for Jewish purification at the wedding of Cana, turning water into wine at that wedding. And he taught in that passage as well that the temple, the place where God dwelled among his people, where sinners sought purification and cleansing to be acceptable in God's sight, actually is not that building, it's not in Jerusalem, it's him. It's Jesus Christ who is the true temple where men and women are made clean to be able to be in the presence of God. It's his body that would then later be killed and raised up in three days from the dead. At the end of chapter 2 through chapter 3, Jesus taught that he knows what is in man. Unless somebody is born again of water and of the Spirit, that it seems the purification, the regeneration by the Holy Spirit... And then John chapter 3 then closes with John the Baptist's disciples arguing about Jewish purification. And they become concerned that more people are being baptized by Jesus Christ than John the Baptist. 
And John the Baptist says he's merely a friend at the end of the passage from last week. That he's merely a friend of the bridegroom and that Jesus is the groom. And that whoever believes in him will see life. So far the themes of baptism, purification, washing, regeneration by the Holy Spirit alone are mixed together with imagery of marriage, obedience or belief, and eternal life. There's more themes that we could consider from all of these chapters so far. But all of this hinges on the old covenant law of Moses being fulfilled and then transitioning into the promised new covenant in the grace and truth that is in Jesus Christ alone. So here's the big idea of our text from this morning. We see some of these themes popping up again as Jesus encounters this woman of Samaria at the well. In this text, we see that the cure for our spiritual dehydration, our cure, the only cure for spiritual drought, is to receive the Holy Spirit of believing in the gospel. And I have four points to make from this. Number one, drink the water that Jesus gives. Drink the water that Jesus gives. Number two, drink by letting Jesus expose your sin. Number three, drink that the Spirit enables us to drink by acceptably worshiping God. And then lastly, drinking the Spirit enables boldly sharing Christ. The first point again, drink the water that Jesus gives. Jesus has been in Galilee, and then he has been then later then in Judea, but in both of those places he's been among Jews. But here Jesus doesn't take the long way back home up to Galilee from Judea, but the fastest route, as the, as the crow flies, to go through Samaria. The Jewish historian Josephus describes that the shorter route that would go through Samaria was actually the preferred route of the time. So it's not necessarily the less traveled route, but they are walking through a region of people that the Jews had an animosity toward, and likewise the Samarians to them. But the, the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans were strong, and it goes back all the way to the Assyrian exile in 722 B.C., when Assyria captured Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, they deported the leading Israelites among them, and then they settled the land with Gentiles who then intermarried with the Israelites that were left. You can see that in 1 Kings chapter 17 or 2 Kings chapter 17 through 18. And when the Jews then came back from Babylonian exile, the southern kingdom, they saw the Samaritans as children of political rebels racial half-breeds as part of the Gentiles whose religion had become mixed with pagan idolatry. They built a rival temple at Mount Gerizim in Samaria in around 400 BC. And then that was destroyed by uh, a Jew, uh, John Hyrcanus is his name, who ruled in Judea uh, before the coming of Christ, before the the first temple, or the second temple period in Jesus' day in the first century. Many, in many ways, the Jews and the Samaritans saw each other as enemies. So this shortcut that would go from Judea back up to Galilee through Samaria, they are walking through what they consider to be enemy territory, and yet at the same time it was the fastest, so it was the preferred route. But look at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 
Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour, and you see these references to different hours of the day. The sixth hour would have been 12 noon, the heat of the day. No one from the local community would have been coming out to the well at this particular time of day. Usually water was gathered when it was darker out or cooler in the day in the evening. Look at verses 7 through 9. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This meeting between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it's a powerful contrast to Jesus' meeting previously with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, a man of the Pharisees, likely on the, the, the judicial court of the land and the Sanhedrin at the time. He was a teacher of Israel. But this woman is not coming under the cover of night, but in the middle of the day, in the sunlight, in the heat of the day, but also alone. Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus was in the secrecy of night. Here, it's in the heat and light of the day. Looking for water, she discovered that she needed something much more, more important than water. Jesus asked her to give him a drink. And this is scandalous for a couple of reasons. First, we have it there in verse 8. You can see it. The Jews and the Samaritans, they simply don't talk to each other. These are enemies. You don't talk with the Samaritans. But second, Jesus is alone with a woman. At a well. One commentator writes, by asking for a drink from a woman who had come to the well alone, Jesus himself being alone broke all the rules of Jewish piety. Women normally gathered again in the evenings, together in groups, but this woman's alone in the heat of the day. It's likely that she was looked down upon because of her multiple marriages and the fact that now she's with a man who is not her husband. She's not married to this man. On top of this, wells in the Hebrew mind have been a basic understanding of an element of a, of a Hebrew love story, as it were. From Moses meeting Zipporah and her sister, her sisters rather, at the well in Exodus chapter two, to Abraham finding Isaac's wife Rebekah at the well in her town, to Jacob meeting Rachel at a well. Jesus alone at a well with a woman who also is alone, opens him up to the accusation of flirting and love and romance. And with these things in the context, she essentially says, I don't think you know what you're asking. Are you sure that you want to ask water for water from me? Look at verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, 
as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. It's interesting that it, the encounter begins with just a mere description and trying to understand physical things, but it's slowly transitioning into an addressing of a spiritual thirst, a, a need for a spiritual water. She's not understanding understanding a little bit. You see, see the kind of opening of her understanding throughout the course of the narrative of the text. Again, he's asking her for physical water. He's thirsty. But she doesn't realize that he is able to give a water that would satisfy her forever. A spiritual water that would satisfy her unto eternal life. He's able to give a purifying water that is able to wash her with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, not from mere outward forms of things like Jewish washings and ceremonial washings, purification rites and the rest, or even John the Baptist's baptism, but a water that she can drink and be satisfied that would cleanse her from the inside out, a water that would give her a new heart. This is the water that he gives. Living water is fresh running water that's from a spring or from a river. It's not stagnant. It doesn't become putrid. If you've ever smelled sitting water that just sits there for a long time, not having any type of current coming through it to refresh it. No, he is able to give a living water. And that's where her question comes from in regard to Jacob's well in particular. Right? The spring that fills Jacob's well is very deep. And she understands that Jesus is talking about water from somewhere other than the well. And one of the reasons why she asked that question, are you, are you able to do something that is greater than Jacob did by having to dig this well? He had to dig really deep to dig this well in order to find living water that would refresh the well so that it doesn't become putrid and poisonous to the people that drink from it. And you're able to give a water, a living water, that is able to do something that Jacob's well here wasn't able to accomplish? This is the thought that drives her question there in verse 12. You think you're greater than Jacob who had to dig this well? And then verses 13 through 15 clarify that Jesus is talking about eternal life, sustained by a spiritual water that nobody but him can give. Friends, the needs of our physical bodies were made by God to teach us of our spiritual need. There is a connection between the physical and the spiritual. What God has put together, let no man divide. The Apostle Paul writes, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, so our body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Any type of living that somehow divorces your need for a spiritual renewal by the gift of the Holy Spirit, being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus alone is able to give is a life that is not living off of living water. You're drinking from a poisonous well if you don't have God through Christ. 
You're going to a place to find nourishment for your life that has become stagnant and putrid. Don't miss the point of our physical existence. We were made for God. And unless we have reconciliation with God, we'll drink poisonous water. We will live a life of not only spiritual malnutrition and dehydration, and famine and droughts, but a spiritual life of malnutrition, dehydration, and drought. Don't be deceived by the temptations of your flesh that would seek to drink water from wells that are dug that will never satisfy. That's what this world would offer us. That's the self-help movement in, in and of itself. The power of pursuing positive thinking or something that's rooted in anything other than Jesus Christ. Friends, until we have purification that can cleanse us and satisfy us from the inside out, the living water that Jesus alone is able to give, we will never be satisfied. We will be constantly striving, constantly miserable, moving from idol to idol, entertainment to entertainment, education to education, job to job, husband to husband in this text, romance to romance, well to well. Friends, we need a gift from God. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, gives sinners the right to become children of God. We need a gift. It's not something we can conjure up within ourselves. It's not something we can earn. We need a gift that God alone can give and does through Jesus Christ. We need a gift. In John 3, 16, we thought about this in the previous weeks, of God's only begotten Son who is able to cleanse and purify sinners through the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit that we would not perish but have eternal life. A living water that wells up unto eternal life that Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman here about. As we read throughout the text, even as we considered last week, God the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand, John chapter 3, verse 34. He gives the Spirit without measure. So friends, we must be born again, even as we thought about, by water and the Spirit. And this is a gift here that isn't only for the Jews, but for the enemies of the Jews, the Gentiles, and the people that the Jews look down on as a half-breed idolaters of the Samaritans. Jesus came to save the sick from every nationality, every ethnicity. He came to save the poorest among us that everyone would look down on in society. Would we be rejected by the people that we love? Would we be rejected by society? Cast out as impure by others. And Jesus came to save impure sinners like us. The water that Jesus gives to drink is his Holy Spirit. That's what the water is. And drinking is a powerful metaphor, again, for the inward spiritual cleansing that we need. The satisfaction that satiates our thirst is that we would drink deeply of the Holy Spirit that Jesus alone is able to give. That the ritual purification of the washing within Judaism could never get. It was merely external. 
But the water that Jesus gives makes all things new from within and out. Listen to John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. Here Jesus identifies that the water he gives is the Holy Spirit. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Pentecost has not happened yet, but he's teaching about all the things that will happen when he ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, sends the Spirit into the hearts of his people to regenerate them, renew them, cause them to be born again, to repent and believe, and to have full entrance into the kingdom of God by the merits of Christ's righteousness, not our own. On this side of Christ's glorification and crucifixion in which we live now, he has been crucified. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And now we have received the Spirit into our hearts if we have trusted in the gospel, turned from trusting in our sins, in our efforts. So how can we drink deeply of this living water of the Holy Spirit that Jesus alone gives well, first, let him confront you in your sin. You have to be confronted with the truth of your sin. Jesus loves us enough to expose the mess of our lives that we have made. That's the second point. Drink by letting Jesus expose your sin. If you neglect the fact that you are dehydrated in sin, you won't drink enough water that your body desperately needs. It's no different spiritually in regard to thirst between physical and spiritual. First, we have to understand that we are dehydrated, that we need water. We need to be drinking all the time to understand the spiritual water that we need that would satisfy us. And second, we have to know that Jesus has the knowledge of the depth of our need for a thirst and he also has the power to give the only water that can sustain us eternally. Look at verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. We have a need, friends, much deeper than mere physical thirst. We have a spiritual thirst for God that we are often ignorant of. So we just walk around dehydrated, like most Americans do, in regard to physical water. We do that spiritually too often. We're ignorant uh, that without Christ giving us his Holy Spirit that we will never have our thirsts satisfied. We'll run to well after well. We'll run to satisfy our thirst in so many things in this world, and it never satisfies us. We move to a new job. We move to a new lover. We move to a new uh, story that we like or a game or a friend. It never satisfies us. The Samaritan woman's life was a mess. We don't know the circumstances of having five husbands exactly, 
whether by sin or death or five marriages are, are over and done. And now she has another man who isn't her husband. And the language that is used here to say that she has this man, it's plain that she's living with him and being intimate with him in the way that she would with a husband, and yet he is not her husband. There's fornication going on. She's giving herself into sexual sin. She's not married. They're living together. They're having sex together. They, they are living as if they were husband and wife, and they are not. Jesus knows all of it. Can you imagine that? Walking up to a person who exposes your sin right there. They know it. They know the depth of it. They know the breadth of it. That's Jesus. These circumstances are likely the reason that she's getting the water in the heat of the day by herself again. Not only would she be rejected from the Jews, she'd be rejected by the, the Gentile Samaritans. Day after day. In isolation. Continuing to drink from the spiritual well of sexual immorality. From the spiritual well of the false promises of the world. Going in the heat of the day all by herself, rejected from her community to gather water, physical water, that won't satisfy. And here the Son of God, Jesus Christ, meets her and graciously teaches her how she can have eternal life through the water that he gives of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows everything that is in man. We saw that at the end of chapter 2. And he knows everything about this woman. And he diagnoses her spiritual dehydration through his exhaustive knowledge of her sin. Exposing it. One of the first steps, if we would drink of the living water that Jesus gives, if we would receive the Holy Spirit, is that we would be confronted in our sins and plainly acknowledge it. Here's a man who is very God, who knows everything about us. He knows the cure for our drought, our spiritual drought and lack. Grace and truth have come in Jesus Christ. Jesus then exposes the truth of her sin. He exposes the truth of our sins. As we read through his word, as we see the holiness of God, as we see the, the, the righteousness of his commands... Jesus loves us to expose our sin, even as he does with the Samaritan woman. She knows them. And yet he makes it even more plain by putting it into words, expressing his omnipotence and omniscience of her heart. What are the sins that Jesus, friends, has exposed in your life? When you read through the Bible, what are the sins that are increasingly exposed that you struggle with? What are the sins that compose your spiritual dehydration and drought? What are the things in your life that you're afraid that if other people knew that they would reject you in the same way that they rejected the Samaritan woman? Friends, Jesus knows it all, and he alone has the power to give the Holy Spirit to cleanse us from the inside out, both to wash us and also to satisfy our thirst ultimately to be acceptable in our worship of God. Acknowledge, friends, your sin. Acknowledge that Jesus alone 
is able to both satisfy you for what you thirst, but then also to purify you through the giving of the Holy Spirit. In meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, we see that in line with Moses and Isaac and Jacob, Jesus is the husband, the bridegroom, who is saving a bride in the church. Here, first in this Samaritan woman, but in a church, he meets us, as it were, at a well, exposing our sin, exposing the diagnosis of our dehydration, that he would satisfy us with the giving of his Holy Spirit that would regenerate us, cause us to be born again, that we would receive the love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond in love to him in repentance and faith. Jesus meeting the woman at the well is the ultimate picture of a Hebrew love story of a bride coming to save a, bri a bridegroom coming to save a bride unto himself. Jesus alone knows our need and he alone can meet it with the living water he gives. Number three, drinking the spirit enables acceptable worship. The Samaritan woman is beginning to understand what Jesus is talking about bit by bit. And Jesus is claiming to give water that makes a person acceptable in the sight of God. And she makes this connection clear in verses 19 through 20. Look at it. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Ah, she's starting to make the connection between the physical and the spiritual. Jesus isn't a normal man. He's not just randomly sitting at a well. She thinks he's a prophet, so... She asks about the difference between Jewish and Samaritan worship by saying that you say in Jerusalem is the one place where people ought to worship. She's simply saying, well, Jesus, you're a Jew, and you all say that it's wrong for us to worship on Gerizim or wherever we would build our temple. She's bringing up the question of religious pluralism, comparative religion. Well, you know, I know you Jews say this thing about what worship is and acceptable worship in the sight of God. Well, we Samaritans say this about what worship is and who God is and the acceptable worship of God. Now, what you're telling me, you're telling me everything about my life, <laughs> you're exposing my sin, so I think you're a prophet. Which one's right? Are both, is it okay for the Samaritans to worship in the way that they do? Is it more acceptable for the Jews to worship in the way that they do? Which one's right? Or are they both right? Are all religions the same? Is the Samaritan worship of God mixed with pagan idols okay? Look at Jesus' response in verse 21 to 26. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, it's the same way he addressed his mother at the wedding of Cana. Remember, when he addresses her, it's in, in grace and mercy. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. The Jewish word for Messiah, Meshiach, the Greek word for that is Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is saying that the Jews' friends were right under the Old Covenant. 
The Samaritan position of the worship of God was wrong. The syncretism, the pluralism of idolatry mixed in with the religious worship of God is wrong. The Samaritans are right to acknowledge that we were made to worship a God, but they don't know God. The Jews are right to worship Yahweh as he has revealed himself in the Jewish scriptures. The one true and living God who has revealed himself in the Old Testament of our Bible. But the hour is here when both are done away with. Salvation is from the Jews. It's not from the Samaritans. It's not from a Gentile nation or some type of mixed Gentile nation with some heritage within Judaism. Salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ creates worshipers from every tribe and tongue and language who are no longer limited to a city or a physical building like a temple. We don't make pilgrimage to some city. We don't have to go to Jerusalem in order to worship God. We don't have to go to celebrate Passover in Israel. There's no spiritual significance for us to make a trip overseas and pursue to be baptized someplace closer, maybe perhaps in the Jordan that's where John the Baptist was baptizing, where Jesus was baptized, or, or some other place with some real significance in the history of God's people, and yet, spiritually speaking, that has no control over the way that we think of our worship of God. How do we receive the regeneration of the Holy Spirit? How can we drink of this living water that Jesus offers? How can we express an acceptable worship in the sight of God by drinking of the Spirit? By hearing the gospel, having your sin exposed through Christ, confessing your need for Christ, turning from embracing your sin and embrace your Savior, Jesus Christ, obeying the gospel call to repent and believe in him alone, leaving off all other lovers, having Christ as your husband. Salvation, friends, is not by faith, by our, our faith, our conjuring up belief in ourselves. It's not by our works. It's through Jesus Christ alone, and that grace is accessed by simply receiving and believing of the work that he has done. Repenting of all other things and trusting in Jesus Christ. We take hold of the salvation that he gives by believing in the God who gives the Messiah through the Jews. The Messiah, or Christ, qualifies and enables his people to worship the Father in spirit and truth. Do you see that? That the type of worship that Jesus is ushering in is in spirit and in truth. And yes, again, Jesus makes all things new, and he is causing us to be born again, washing us from the inside out, giving us the gift of his Holy Spirit and regeneration. So we must worship the Lord, yes, from the heart, not in mere outward performances, and yet spirit here isn't referring to an inward feeling or even my personal soul. Spirit here is in reference to the Holy Spirit. Even as Jesus has already taught that nobody can be born again by the flesh, that the flesh is of no help at all. Only the Holy Spirit, and nobody knows from where it comes from or where it goes. It's like the wind, Jesus has already taught. The only worship that God the Father accepts is worship from people who have the Holy Spirit in their hearts. 
The eternal life that we live is fueled by drinking the living water, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus alone is able to give. And the substance of the eternal life, of what that looks like, practically speaking, is worshiping God. That's the abundant life that Jesus gives, hearts who love and worship God. And there's always a congregational element to this in the Hebrew mind and in the Christian practice as well. We love to worship God together in the congregation. Those who love God, truly love Him, are those who receive Jesus Christ, who have new hearts, are born again, and worship Him through that Holy Spirit that He gave through the truth of Jesus Christ. John 14, we'll see later. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If we would worship God without Jesus Christ or without the gift of the Holy Spirit, our worship is not acceptable to God. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So friends, unless we have the Holy Spirit of God, we can strive to worship Him in our own strength, but He will never accept it. Unless we have Christ as our mediator, God will not accept our worship or even hear our prayers. So friends, beware of the appearance of godliness before men, even before yourself. But deny its power of a changed life. Beware of the warning to the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, where it says this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Friends, may that never be said of us. Hearts that are not truly filled with the Holy Spirit, born again, regenerated, renewed. Unless we have Christ, unless we have the gift of living water and the Holy Spirit, we cannot rightly or acceptably worship the one true and living God. Without Jesus Christ's power to give us this living water into our hearts, all of our attempts at worship will be powerless pursuits at idolatry, masquerading as acceptable worship. This should cause all of us to despair of our sin, to leave off any hope that we can somehow make ourselves acceptable to God through even good commands and trying to pursue those things in, in the word of worship. But this despairing over our weakness and sin should drive us to Christ. And not just a public worship in the church one day a week, a gathering with friends every once in a while, but an all-of-life worship, recognizing that when I get up in the morning, I need to drink of this living water. Unless the Holy Spirit of God moves, I have no hope. There is no boasting in my flesh. There is no boasting in my works. I've got nothing unless God works by His Spirit. Worship is no longer limited to a day. Worship is no longer marked by pilgrimage. Worship is no longer designated to a small geographical space like the temple. But all of God's people who have received His Holy Spirit all of the time, everywhere, worship God acceptably through Christ. It's an all-of-life worship. The Samaritan woman seems to get this. 
The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am. So one of those I am statements where Jesus is claiming to be very God, Yahweh. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. He is the anointed one, the promised one of God. He is very God in the flesh who came to save weak and ruined sinners like the Samaritan woman and like me. He sought her as well. She wasn't out looking for him. Jesus is the Christ who knows all things. He knows the only way that sinners can be acceptable in God's sight. Friends, if we drink of the living water that Jesus gives, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, friends, we have a hope not only of being able to have our worship acceptable before God, but we will have the hope of eternal life. And nothing that we face in this world can threaten that. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and following, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus or Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The only way that we can be acceptable before God is if we receive God's love for us of the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul keeps going, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the Samaritan woman can draw water, she can go back home, and she can have a hope. They can outlast being satisfied by drinking physical water for a time and going back to the misery of her sin. The fourth point is this. Drinking the Spirit enables boldly sharing Christ. And I'll close with this in verses 27 to 30. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. She found a place where she could be acceptable before God, made acceptable. She could worship the one true and living God and the Lord would receive it. She found a place where she could have a hope of Drinking of the Holy Spirit that would lead to eternal life, a place that she could be inwardly cleansed and purified in a way that no human effort could ever do. She found a place that she would have hope that the broken marriages of her past and the current fornication with this other man in the home could never bring her. This is the ultimate Hebrew love story. This is the ultimate picture of a a husband that comes for his bride. And she's found it. 
She takes that and then she shares it with everybody else. And friends, I wonder if we would respond in that same way. If you physically encountered Christ, we, we think that this is uh, one of the longest personal conversations that Jesus had between any one person in the gospel accounts. If you just encountered the living Christ face to face, then you had a hope of being accept acceptable before God. Even though the Jews would cast you out, even though even the Samaritans would cast you out, she is welcome in Christ. Friends, what friends do we have in our lives that are sold out into the misery of their sins, seeking to drink out of wells that can never satisfy them? Sure, they're not happy. They're miserable. But how might we be a messenger of telling them about an eternal living water that they could have welling up within themselves that Jesus alone can give, that though their life circumstances may not change, that they have a hope of rendering acceptable worship to God through Jesus Christ alone, that they might have a hope of being welcomed into the presence of God because of Jesus' generous giving of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of those that turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And friends, what are the ways that Jesus would equip us to be his weak and broken messengers? to point other people to an eternally satisfying well that they would find a marriage to a husband in Christ that would satisfy them. Those of us who have been married in this world know that our marriages are not perfect. Those of us who are not married and have not been married know marriages that were not perfect. Friends, the marriage for which we were made is not ultimately between one man or one woman here. It's a marriage to Christ as our bridegroom, to be welcomed into the wedding feast of the Lamb and in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is teaching this broken woman about how she can have that hope, even if everybody would throw her out, that she has a welcome in the kingdom if she would repent of her sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Kids, adults in the room, are you trusting in Christ? Do you have the forgiveness of your sins? Do you have the inward purification that Jesus alone can give in the giving of his Holy Spirit into your life? Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ, and he will save you. He will purify you, though you are a sinner and impure. Friends, this is the ultimate love story of the Bible. That we would be given water and welcome to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So friends, as we close, don't be deceived about your dehydration. Your spiritual dehydration. Don't be deceived about the spiritual drought and refuse to drink of the living water that Jesus alone gives us and that satisfies us. If you're a Christian in the room, come back again and again to this living water that refreshes itself that Jesus alone gives. He gives it generously. He gives it graciously in his kindness. So drink of Christ every day, as long as it is called today. Don't let the hardness of your heart 
that is formed by the deceitfulness of sin. Keep you away from the living water that Jesus gives us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for Christ. We give you praise that even though we are often deceived and confused about the fact that we so often are dehydrated and that leads to even a spiritual languishing. Now, Father, we pray that for the believers in the room here this morning that are trusting in Christ, that you would refresh us even in this new year with the living water, the Holy Spirit that you give to your people generously. Cause us to drink of your mercy and your grace every day, as it's called today. And even as Jesus tarries, we pray that you would help us to take advantage of each day as an opportunity to grow in your mercy. And Father, we pray for those in the room who are not trusting in Christ, that they would see that there's nothing they could do that, that could bring themselves before you. They need your Holy Spirit. And that's not something that they can enact, that they can somehow perform to earn your forgiveness, to worship you acceptably by anything other than the gift of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you be glorified to nourish us deeply, even now as we turn to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Feed us, even as we feast upon Jesus Christ as the bread of life even as we drink of the living water that Jesus gives into the heart of believers in the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.